Good morning, everybody. Welcome uh, again. And it'd uh, be great if you could have that passage open that Sally just read for us. And I'm going to ask for God's help as we turn to his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that as we turn to your word, we are reading uh, the words of one who loves us, who loves us enough to reveal, to reveal things that are good for us, reveal things that will help us to make it to eternity and to form in us the glory of Christ. And so we pray for your help as we listen to your good word. Help it to make sense to us, help it to change us, and please, in us and through us, bring glory to Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, how about this for a statement of faith? Our belief, nothing we do is worth getting hurt for. I came across that on a building site, and I thought that was a good information poster for health and safety uh, for the United Utilities. And in that context, it makes total sense, doesn't it? You see what they're saying? As our engineers and colleagues are about their business, fixing leaks and digging holes and using powerful machinery, often in dangerous situations, uh, perhaps handling hazardous chemicals or dealing with huge amounts of water, uh, we want them to be safe. So don't take risks or shortcuts that endanger yourself or others. It makes sense. It's a good slogan. Nothing we do is worth getting hurt for. But I wonder how that would work as a statement of faith for life. I guess it might work for some people, some of the time, as a general rule, mightn't it? As you're crossing the road as you're frying chips, fixing the car. Not worth getting hurt for those things, is it? But I actually don't think there are many people who would sign up to this as an absolute principle for life. People are actually willing to get hurt for many things, aren't they? That they consider to be important. Soldiers going onto the battlefield, parents sacrificing for their children, Athletes punishing their bodies to get the prize. Even the ambitious worker working, burning the candle at both ends to achieve some goal. Now, people often do get hurt for things they consider important. What about us as Christians, though? What about those who follow Jesus? If you're a Christian this morning, do you ever think like this about your service to Christ? Have you ever been hurt in your service to Christ? Do you have any scars to show it? Scars, perhaps physical scars, emotional, financial or otherwise, to prove to yourself that you are one of his followers? Could a follower of Jesus ever say, nothing we do for him is worth getting hurt for? Interestingly, the word Christian only appears three times in the New Testament. Uh, once as a kind of historical footnote, this is the first time it was used in Antioch. Uh, once when King Agrippa tells Paul to stop trying to convert him. 
And once from the pen of the Apostle Peter, when he makes suffering for Jesus almost a definition of what it is to be a Christian. And what we're going to see this morning is that being hurt for Jesus is always worth it. Or to put it the United Utilities way, everything we do for Christ is worth getting hurt for, if that's what he calls us to do. Just look with me again at how he puts it in verse 24 of the previous chapter. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. Here is the great paradox of Christian discipleship that we saw last week, that Joe has already reminded us of. Giving up your life for him is the way to gain life. By clinging to what we call life, we lose life. We find life by losing it. And so if you spend your life trying not to get hurt, you will regret it. Not only that, but look at the kind of suffering he speaks of. He says he must take up his cross and follow me. To speak of the cross is not to speak of some synonym for having a bit of a hard time. It is specifically in this context to refer to the death that Jesus was facing in Jerusalem. A death that was not just a tragedy, but an execution. Not just an execution, but the most torturous, humiliating execution ever conceived. The one that the Romans saved for the lowest of the low, for those they wanted to utterly blot out, whose shame they wanted to parade before the world. It is this shocking and shameful death that Jesus knows he was facing, and it's to this same cross that he calls those who want to follow him. And he says, this is how you get life. This is how you get life. But you know, speaking for myself, and I suspect for you as well, it is hard to believe. It was extremely hard for the disciples to believe as the conversation that follows between Peter and Jesus reveals. And I think it's very hard for us to believe. I think every bone in our body, every fiber of our culture, every statement of wisdom in the world, every advert, every song, every tweet, every book tells you that if you want life, you've got to protect it. You've got to get it yourself, promote yourself. But Jesus says just the opposite. If you want to get life, you've got to take up your cross and die with him. Which is why he now takes three of his disciples up a mountain. He wants to show them why this must be the case and what it means. And so we're going to look at this episode under three headings that you'll see on the sheet. And then we're going to spend a fair bit of time this morning reflecting on what we learned. Three headings, seeing, listening, understanding. Seeing, first of all, and come back to verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Now, mountains in the Bible are places of revelation. Moses up Mount Sinai, 
receiving the law of God, Elijah at Mount Carmel, having a great experience of the uniqueness of God. And even in Matthew's gospel, Jesus' most important teaching moments have been on mountains. The most famous sermon ever preached in the whole world, the Sermon on the Mount. Why are mountains places of revelation? It could be there's some symbolism because a mountain seems to kind of join heaven and earth. And so here is an appropriate place for God to reveal his glory for the glory of heaven somehow to break through to the earth. I suspect that's part of it. And so as Jesus separates off these three disciples, Peter, James, and John, and takes them on the special journey up a high mountain all by themselves, we are expecting, I think, some kind of lesson or teaching or revelation, and I think they would be too. Perhaps an elaboration of the discussion that is started six days before, the discussion that had led to such conflict between Jesus and his disciples about his suffering as the Christ, a discussion that was by no means resolved. But whatever they were expecting, I don't think anything could prepare them for this. Verse 2, there he was transfigured before him, his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell this story, and they all use just slightly different expressions to help us understand it. Mark says Jesus' clothes were whiter than anyone could bleach them. Luke says his clothes became as bright as lightning. And Matthew says his face shone like the sun. All of these are attempting to describe the indescribable. It's like trying to describe chocolate ice cream to an unborn baby. There is no analogy that fits. There is no earthly experience to latch onto. But all descriptions are similar, aren't they? The light, the indescribable brightness breaking through. But what does it mean? What is it all about? Well, one way of looking at it, and an obvious way, is to see this as a kind of unveiling of who Jesus really is. See, when Jesus came into the world, he came as God in the flesh. The Bible tells us that, but you wouldn't know it by looking at him. Throughout his life, he looks like an ordinary man. He's born an ordinary baby in a manger in Bethlehem. He's an ordinary boy growing up in Nazareth. He's an ordinary-looking man growing up and going on his way, his skin color, his hair color, the dusty clothes, walking the dusty streets. He just looks like any ordinary Jewish man, although he is in very nature God. But his godness is hidden. As Paul tells us in Philippians 2, he empties himself of deity. He takes the form of the servant being made in human likeness. Or as we sing in that best of all Christmas carols, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail incarnate deity. And so perhaps here is a moment when the veil is pulled back, when the disguise is removed, the secret is let loose, and you get a glimpse of who Jesus is really is in his person, in his dazzling glory. It sounds right, doesn't it? But I don't think that's quite what's going on. For a start, look at verse 3. 
Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Matthew gives us a picture now in which Jesus is kind of framed by two special men from the past. I don't know how the disciples recognize them as such. Presumably Moses was just one of these people of such stature that you would just know him when you saw him. And Elijah, we know how he recognized him because he actually has a description. But here these two men, known from the Old Testament, Moses dead one and a half thousand years, Elijah dead 900 years. And here they are, real people, standing with Jesus, having a conversation. Why these two people? Well, Moses was the leader of God's people through whom he gave the law. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses points forward to a time when another prophet like him will appear, and he says you must listen to him. Elijah was the great prophet of the Old Testament, the great prophet of the time of the kings, the prophet of the kingdom of God. And the last chapter of the Old Testament finishes with a promise that he will return. And his return will usher in the days of the Christ. And so both of these men, Moses with the law, Elijah the prophet, both of these men together point forwards to the coming of the Christ. In fact, they spent their lives pointing forwards to the coming of the Christ and suffered for it. And here they get the immense privilege of meeting him. And so as the disciples look at the scene, this revelation of brightness is now beginning to take on something other than mere brightness. It is beginning to say something to them. Because together, these two men represent the entire revelation and expectation of God to his people. The law and the prophets, the entire Old Testament pointing forwards to Christ. And so these two men stand like signposts, pointing to Jesus as the climax and the fulfillment of God's revelation. The hopes and dreams of Israel coming to pass on him. But before we see the significance of that, Peter speaks, verse 4. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Peter's reaction is a little baffling, but I think it tells us what Peter has understood, and it tells us what is not understood. On the one hand, he tells us that this is a very special moment. Here are the three great men of God talking to each other on the top of the mountain. And Peter doesn't seek to intrude on the conversation. He can see that this is sort of beyond him and above him. But he wants the moment to last. He wants to capture this glorious moment and prolong it. And so I think putting up the shelters is, is the equivalent of just whipping out his phone and sort of taking a picture and maybe, maybe daring to take a selfie. He wants to capture the moment wants to make it last. He's understood that this is a moment of greatness and glory. But it also tells us what he hasn't understood. He hasn't understood that this moment of revelation is not in fact the climax, but it's another staging post to the climax of revelation. This is not the moment where Jesus unveils his glory it is a glimpse of the glory to come. 
So Peter has not yet understood how the glory of Jesus will be revealed to the world. And to understand that, he needs to keep listening and stop speaking, our second point. Verse 5, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. Peter is interrupted mid-flow by a bright cloud and a voice speaking from within the cloud. Now, many of us will have had experiences of clouds at the top of mountains, but it's nothing to write home about, is it? Cold, damp, no view. I am yet to see the view from the top of Ingleborough. There has always been a cloud there, but this is a different cloud. This is the cloud of the glory of God. You can trace it back through your Old Testament. This is the cloud that led the Israelites across the Red Sea after their escape from Egypt. This is the cloud that Moses entered on the top of Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 as the mountain shook and the people trembled and they begged God to stop speaking. This is the cloud that descended on the tent of meeting in Exodus 40 where Moses went to speak with God. This is the cloud that filled the temple with the glory of God. And so I think what we come to now is the pivot of the story and the pivot of the gospel of Matthew. Because notice carefully how things now change. From now, it's been up till now, it's been about what they saw, the sight, the appearance, how Jesus looked. But notice the shift. Verse 5, a voice from the cloud said, this is my son, listen to him. There's the shift. And there are three things we need to notice about that. Who speaks, what he says, and why? Who speaks? Well, Matthew doesn't need to spell it out, does he? This is, without doubt, the voice of God. Notice, for example, that it's only now that they fall down in fear. When they saw Jesus transfigured, I think they were pretty awestruck. But Peter was jabbering on about tense, didn't know what to say. But it's now that they hear the voice... They stop speaking, they drop to the floor, as people always do when they encounter the presence of God in the Bible, when they hear his voice. Second, notice what he says. Once before, God's voice has been heard in Matthew. Back in 3.17, after Jesus was baptized, a voice came from heaven, identifying and affirming Jesus. This is my son from Psalm 2 with whom I am well pleased, from Isaiah 42. And now this message is repeated word for word, but now adds a reference from Deuteronomy 18.15, the passage I mentioned earlier about the prophet like Moses, and God says, listen to him. And so thirdly, why does he say that? What does listen to him mean in this context? Well, you'll have heard people say a picture is worth a thousand words picture is worth a thousand words in that case the experience of the transfiguration ought to have been self-explanatory but it's not true that a picture is worth a thousand words ask any of my children because when I used to read to them when they were little I would tell them this 
The reason the hungry caterpillar eats the nice green leaf is because he has stomachache, but you can't quite work that out from the picture. The words explain the pictures. I need to apologize to my children. I think it became a bit tedious. The reason Fireman Sam is looking worried is because Elvis has burnt the toast again. You can't see it from the pictures. You have to read the words. The words explain the pictures. And here's the point. They have seen Jesus transfigured. Seen him as they would never have seen him before in dazzling white light that defies description. And the voice says, this is my son. And there is a very natural sense that we want to run to the immediate explanation. Those of us who, who, you know, like theology, we want to get out our theology textbook and say, well, you know, this is about the incarnation. This is about the pre-incarnate son, the glory of Jesus, who is God, veiled incarnate deity. And here we have the veil being taken away. That's not what the voice says, is it? The voice does not say, this is my son, worship him. This is my son, serve him, honor him, follow him. The voice does not say, seek out these mountaintop climaxes or never forget this one. The voice is pointing onwards. The voice is saying, listen to him and then the picture will make sense. Listen to him and keep listening to him. And then you'll come to understand the transfiguration. Why did God need to say that? Because the disciples were not listening to Jesus. They did not understand him when he spoke of his suffering. They will not understand him. They are not listening. Well, what happens when we listen to Jesus at this point in Matthew's Gospel? If we listen to Jesus, he'll give us understanding. And that understanding will show us that his glory will be revealed in his suffering. And so our third point, understanding. The listening actually begins immediately with the conversation they have on their way down the mountain. There are two parts to this. First, Jesus' command to silence about what has just happened. Verse 9, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Can you imagine how hard it would be to obey that instruction? Imagine the questioning looks from the other disciples, the whispered exchanges. Perhaps Peter, James, and John would just, just have this kind of look on their faces that caused the others to question them and wonder what they'd seen. But they were sworn to secrecy. They were allowed to say nothing. Only in the light of the cross and the resurrection, when they finally understand what they've seen, then they can speak. Then the command to silence will be a command to shout it from the rooftops, but only after the cross and resurrection. Second is the discussion about Elijah, verse 10. The disciples asked him, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? This question seems to come out of the blue, but of course it was prompted by the appearance of Elijah on the mountaintop. But there's a little more to this, and we need to understand this if we can. There was 
in the minds of the Jewish people at that time, something of a, an apocalyptic timetable, you know, the kind of events of the end kind of mapped out in some kind of order that would lead to the kingdom of God. And so just think back to what the disciples were thinking. Remember a couple of weeks ago, 1616, when Peter, speaking on behalf of the others, he finally gets the fact that Jesus is the Christ. Look back with me, 1616, he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And what did Peter mean by that? What did he mean when he said that word, you are the Christ, the son of God? Well, all we need to do to get inside the heads of the disciples is to read our Old Testaments and to understand the hope that they thought was coming with the coming of the Christ. Think, for example, to Isaiah 11. When the days of the Christ come, the wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra. And the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. See, all through Matthew's gospel, he has been reaching and teaching a people in the shadow of death. Death, disease, demon possession, sin. And the disciples, when they said, you are the Christ, they know that he is going to restore the world. He's going to lift the shadow of death. He's going to bring the light of heaven flooding to earth. And the recognition of the Christ reverberates with all of that. In other words, you are the Christ. Means we are expecting the new heavens and the new earth. A transformed people, a transformed environment, the renewal of creation itself, the coming of the kingdom of God in glory and greatness and power. That's what they believed. But according to the timetable the Old Testament had given them, there was something that was supposed to happen first. There was this Elijah person referred to in the last chapter of the Old Testament. Just before the Old Testament closes, Malachi 4.5, we read that God would send the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And you may know that even today, Jewish families, when they sit down to the Passover meal, they put an extra cup of wine on the table and they leave the door open for Elijah. Because his return marks the arrival of the Messiah and the end. And so that's what's in the disciples' minds as they head down the mountain. If you are the Christ, then where was Elijah? Have we missed him? Has he missed his cue? If you are the Christ and you are bringing the day of the Lord, the end of all things, the kingdom of God, then when did Elijah come? Well, look at Jesus' reply, verse 13. To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things, but I tell you, Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wanted. The Elijah prophet, readers of Matthew already know, is John the Baptist. He was the one who looked like Elijah, he spoke like Elijah, he announced the coming of the Messiah. 
He sought to restore all things with his preaching. He paid for it by being beheaded by John the ba- by Herod in a squalid prison in the middle of a drunken party. And now Jesus comes to his point, verse 12. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking about John the Baptist. And so you, can you see the cogs now working in the minds of the disciples, the timetable being worked out? If Elijah has already come, then there is only one more thing left to happen before the kingdom comes, before the Lord comes in power, and Jesus spells it out for them, the one thing that needs to happen is the suffering of the Son of Man. And now we understand the transfiguration. This is what it's all been pointing to. The dazzling brightness is not the unveiling of the pre-incarnate glory of the person of Christ. But it's a foreshadowing of the glory that his work will achieve. It's a glimpse of the splendor and majesty of the Son of Man in Daniel 7, to whom God will give all power and authority, who will reign over his kingdom and will bring all God's purposes to conclusion. It is a glimpse of the glory that is going to be revealed in his death when he wins the victory over evil on the cross. It was a little moment to point them forwards. So when Jesus hangs on the Roman cross and looks anything but glorious, they don't miss it. They know that this is the moment when the Messiah has come. This is the moment when the end comes, when creation begins to be transformed, when the glory and brightness and goodness and grace and power of God that will one day flood the universe begins as he dies on the cross. Well, let's conclude with four reflections on what we've seen. We're learning in this section of Matthew this week and last week a very important truth. We're learning about suffering and glory and how those two are forever bound together in the cross of Christ. And so let's unpack that in four different ways. Firstly, see the glory. It's important to notice again that this episode comes in the midst of a conflict between Jesus and the disciples. Remember that after Jesus announced that his work will be done through suffering, his work as the Christ will be completed through the cross, Peter rebukes him, verse 22, Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Peter, who has just confessed him as Christ, is correcting him. This is not the way to talk, he says. This is a misunderstanding. This is not what's expected. Because the idea of Christ and suffering are incomprehensible to them. How can you have the Christ, the Son of Man, on the one hand, who will bring the last days, the transformation of the world, who will rule the universe? How can you talk about suffering and crucifixion on the other 
How can these two things be held together? And I want to suggest, as I did last week, that it's not just Peter who struggles with this, but I think we do too. There is a very natural and normal way to think, a human way to think, that puts glory and suffering in two separate boxes, like oil and water. How can these two things mix? How can they be compatible? Surely only by overcoming suffering can we see glory. Surely the kingdom must come by victory and strength. And this is what we're going to see the disciples struggle with over and over in the chapters that follow. In their quest for greatness, their resistance to service and sacrifice, their denial of Jesus' insistence, it is natural and normal and human to think that nothing is worth getting hurt for. That suffering is something that denies glory. It is the inverse of glory. And can you see that this passage teaches something completely different? Completely counterintuitive. It unites suffering and glory together in the cross of Christ. They must learn that the path of the Messiah must go down before it can come up. It is through the self-giving on the cross that he will defeat death and drive out sin and Satan in order to bring out that new world. His greatness is in his giving, his glory in the foolishness of the cross. And this is where we must look for glory too. And I want to suggest this is extremely practical. See, if God dared to reveal his glory in the weakness and shame of the cross, then we need to be very careful how we assess what is good, what is right, what is God at work. Our natural temptation is to assume, isn't it, that God works through the great things of the world, through power and politics, through impressive people and things that we can see are big and beautiful and successful and clever. But God has chosen to reveal himself in the weakness of the cross, in the weakness of preaching the gospel, in the weakness of the Bible. And remember from chapter 16, God has staked his entire reputation in the world on this ordinary little unimpressive thing called church. Do you see how practical this is? If the cross is the place where God has revealed his glory, then our measurement of success must change. We cannot use the world's measurement of success when God uses the cross. And so what looks like weakness and failure to us may prove the very way God is glorifying himself. And we're going to be thinking more about this this afternoon from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Secondly, we need to see that we can share in this glory. Do you notice that this whole episode is for the benefit of the disciples? It's not for Jesus' benefit. Verse 1, Jesus takes the initiative. He takes them up the mountain. He leads them. He touches them. He speaks to them. He wants to give them a very important lesson that they will never forget. What is the lesson? Well, he wants them to believe 16, 24, and 25. 
Look at it again with me. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. Can you see how illuminating it is to read that again in the light of this passage? Jesus has just revealed to the disciples the dazzling glory that will belong to him as the risen Christ, the Son of Man. And he's now saying he's going to share this glory with them who follow him. He wants them to be part of it. He wants them to be shining like the sun as well. Does that sound fanciful? Well, in 1343, he said the righteous who follow him will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father. They're going to share the glory too. They're going to be transfigured too. But how do we get to share the glory? By taking up our cross and losing our life for him. See, there will be glory and victory in the end. He will shine like the sun in the kingdom of his father. But not yet. There will be a dark and terrible moment that lies ahead. His road goes down before it gets up. It gets dark before it gets light. And those who follow Jesus must follow him on that path. As they see him humiliated on the cross paraded as a failure for the world to see, they must go with him, bearing his shame. And that's how they get life. Just listen to these words from 1 Peter chapter 4. Dear friends, Peter says, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Isn't that helpful? Any Christian suffering? Chris Watkins, a Christian philosopher, puts it like this. He says, The journey to the cross looks for all the world like the buffers at the end of the railway line. A dead end to wreck any hope of arriving at power and wisdom. But just as the train seems about to crash and ruin all hope, just as the passengers screw up their eyes and prepare for impact, just as those who commit to follow Christ feel themselves losing their lives, they find that what appeared to be the buffers are in fact the main line to life. Thirdly, following Jesus means that we listen to Jesus. See, how do we know any of this is true? How do we know that it's real? In the midst of suffering, when every bone of your body tells you to give up and live for yourself, how do you know that this path is the right path? Well, it's by listening to the ordinary, unimpressive words of the Bible. The ordinary preaching of the gospel. And this was, in fact, the very lesson Peter drew from the mountain himself. Just leave something in Matthew and flip over with me to 2 Peter chapter 1, page numbers on the screen. It's interesting to read the letters of 1 Peter in the light of these events. Peter remembers this event in some detail. It clearly left a mark on him, as you would expect. He remembers the event as if it were yesterday. 
But notice how he applies it to his readers. 2 Peter 1, 16. He says, We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Do you notice the bit Peter missed out? Listen to him. And now look at verse 19. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain. And you'll do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Do you see how significant this is for us as Christians? Don't envy people with mountaintop experiences. Peter says, give your attention to the words of the Bible, which are the words of the prophet now fulfilled, now made more certain. And I want to suggest that this has got to be true when life is great, when the train seems to be running on the tracks just fine, when things are going your way, when things are comfortable and fine. But I want to suggest it is perhaps even more important or equally important that when things are particularly hard, when the, the, tra- the train seems to be heading for the buffers, when you really are feeling that you're picking up your cross, when you're wondering whether this is the right path, hadn't we better make sure that at that point of all times we are people who listen to the word? People who listen to the word and will see the glory of God in the face of Christ. Isn't it a great reminder that it is in the anxieties of life as well as the riches of life that in the parable of the sower, Satan plucks away the word. Now we need to listen. We need to be people who listen. People who give up anything rather than give up church or growth group or Bible study or times in the Bible. People who do not have our ears full of the trivia of the Twitter sphere. But we fill our ears with what matters. Listen to him. Well, following Jesus means seeing his glory as we take up our cross, listening to him as we know it's right. And then finally, he says to us, don't be afraid. Come back to Matthew. And verse 7. And how the terrifying episode on the mountain ends. Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said, don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. I think it would have been terrifying for them. And the simple touch of another human being must have been assuring. And don't be afraid could be, it could be just that simple human reassurance. Don't be afraid, it's okay. Let's go back down the mountain. But I wonder if part of their fear was not just the presence of God, but it was what God said. Because they already knew That if they listened to Jesus, he was going to say something they didn't want to hear. 
He was going to keep on talking to them about this cross that he had to face and they had to face with it. And it scares them. And it scares me. And I think it will scare you if you think about this moment of darkness that Jesus is calling us to. And so he is telling them that he, as the Son of Man, is going to go down the mountain and he's going to keep on walking that path down before it can go up. And as, he read, as we read on, we see him face the darkness for our sake. We will come to understand that the cross that he faces is actually the precious moment when he took the sins of mankind upon himself to make it possible for us to have our sins forgiven so that we can enter eternity with the living God, so that we can shine like the sun in the glorious kingdom of the Father. And therefore now he says, do not be afraid because we get to suffer with him. He says to all who want to see glory, will you come with me? Will you keep your eyes on me as I do that for you? Will you put me above all? Will you let me lead you by the hand through your suffering and take you to the other side? Will you bear my shame? Will you be despised and humiliated for me? Will you preach the cross so others can come too? Will you die with me in order to rise with me in a new world? And as he asks them that, he says, don't be afraid. Nothing can harm you because he will rise again. And the light the disciples glimpsed on the mountain will, on the other side of the cross, fill the universe and every eye will see. Let's pray. Rejoice, Peter says. Rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Heavenly Father, we struggle to believe these things. We struggle particularly in the midst of suffering to believe them. We struggle to think about them when life is going well. And so we pray that you would have mercy on us. Soften our hard hearts. Open our blind eyes. Let us be those who give our attention to the word and so see the glory of Christ in the cross and cling to him and not be afraid. For he is risen again. Amen.